Good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you today. So, um, and Jill and Jacob, I want to echo what Wade just said. We're very grateful for you, Jill, the way you invested in my daughter, Bethany. Um, we will forever be th- grateful for that. Thank you. And Jacob, the way you have fired me up numerous times to be bold and follow Jesus is awesome. So very excited for you guys and what's coming up. So I don't know if I like you sitting there right now, but we'll do that. We'll we'll pull through. So everybody else, it's good to be with you. Um, I am sore. Like how many of you had to shovel that mass of snow yesterday? Oh my goodness. I lift weights and I, I mean, all the machines I use, they'll do this and this. There's none that do this apparently because I'm really sore in some of those places. So yeah, and I um, I thought at one day, we didn't, we've never gotten a snowblower. I've always said I've got three snowblowers, or I mean, I was shovelers, and uh, they none of them were around yesterday. One was, two were in college. So anyway, that was brutal. So it's good to be with you, and um, it is Good Friday, Easter. I mean, it is good tonight. I'm off today. Uh, Palm Sunday, so Easter is coming, and the snow should melt, and we should all be good. So um, yeah, so... Um, I'm speaking to a group of students in a couple weeks about one of my favorite subjects. used to do it a lot as a youth pastor about what is God's plan for love and sex and dating and marriage. It's a beautiful topic to talk about. And one thing that I always like to do is look at how young kids define love. Like what do little kids say love is? How can you tell when people are really in love? And so I looked up a new one of those this week, and here's some examples. Like Karen is a seven-year-old girl, and she says, uh, when you have, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. So that's how you can tell, you know, when there's love, when it's real. Carl is five years old and Carl said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on cologne and they go out and smell each other. So it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe so, you know. So Rebecca's an eight-year-old and this one's kind of touching. She said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even though his hands have arthritis too. That's love. That's a beautiful picture there. One other, so little bathroom humor here. Mark is six years old, and he says, when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross, that's love. So, <laughs> so anyway, whichever one of those strikes with you is fine, so we're good. But what I want to do this morning is just make a really clear answer from the Bible. How can you tell? How can you tell that God loves you? How, how can you know that? That's just something we hope or wish. But how can you know that God loves you? And the Bible says God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And there's a couple of places in the Bible, too, where even just to define what love is, like when love is used and misused in so many ways, in our culture today. But when 1 John 3:16 says, this is love. Like if you wonder what love is, this is love. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love. So we've been studying the gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark 15 today. It's appropriate as we step into the Passion Week to just take a look at what Jesus went through for us. It's a very, in many ways, hard chapter to read. We're going to see Jesus suffer for us. And in fact, there's no way to measure how much did Jesus suffer for us because in the same way, you cannot measure how much Jesus loves you. It's like the two go side by side, that the more you see him suffer, the more you realize that he did that for us in spite of our sin. Like this is an incredibly powerful chapter to read this morning. And so Jesus did this for us 
And the message of God's love for you is not just some side tangential message that God has. He wants you to get this. In fact, if you follow Jesus Christ, one of the first things God did was seal you with the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit lives in you. And one of the Holy Spirit's roles, Romans 5, 5 says, is to pour the love of God into our hearts. Like not drip or sprinkle, but to just pour it in there. And so what God would long for us to do this morning is not just study Mark 15 and be moved and be grieved as we see Jesus suffer, but he would love this to transcend just a history lesson of what Jesus did and, and to have this swell in our hearts, just at our hearts in a whole new way, just be loaded up with the love of God. God wants you to embrace his love because when you do, you're, you're just completely changed. There's a revolution that happens when God's people understand how much he loves them. They're just dramatically changed. And we've seen it throughout history. And we're in a day in our city, we're in a day in our country that this country needs this kind of revolution. This country needs people who are so blown away by the love of Jesus, who embrace that love, and then who watch Jesus do powerful things through them. So that's where we're going today. Let me pray, and we'll jump in uh, to Mark 15 together. So, uh, Father, I'm just asking um, that for some of us, as we go through Mark 15, this is going to be familiar. We are familiar with the Passion Week and what Jesus did. Would you cause at least one one part of this story, Jesus, to just jump out in a fresh way to those that know this story already. And Lord, for those of us that think we know this story but have, have missed what your message is here, that you love us, that you are pouring your love into us, that you want to transform us with your love, may we truly be a church and a people that are changed by your love this morning as we study this passage. You're awesome. We love you, Jesus. And we just ask you to teach us today. In your great name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, turn to Mark 15 or go on your device, go to Mark 15. And we are landing the plane on the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying this since the day after the Iowa State game. It's a long time ago, right? And so, bless you. So, uh, so the first 10 chapters in the Gospel of Mark really covers three years of the life of Jesus. And it seems like those first 10 chapters were really us getting presented with who Jesus is. We see his great power. We see him calming storms. We see him raising the dead. We see him teaching great crowds of people. And so three years covered in 10 chapters. But the last six chapters of the Gospel of Mark slow down the pace, and they spend six chapters on just this one week in the life of Christ, the Passion Week that we're stepping into this week. And so on Sunday, which is today, you know, in this Passion Week, Palm Sunday, Jesus rode in on a colt and was worshiped. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that was Sunday, Palm Sunday. Then Monday, Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, goes into the temple and cleanses the temple, throws out all the money changers, all those who were cheating people who were just simply trying to come and worship God. Jesus had nothing to do with that. And that was a major shot at the religious leaders of the day. That was a huge moneymaker for them. And Jesus just flipped over tables, drove out the money changers and, and created a huge scene. Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus goes back to the temple and teaches and answers questions and goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with a lot of these skeptics. 
Then on Thursday of the Passion Week, that's the evening where Jesus celebrated the Passover, the Last Supper with his disciples. And then after that, that Passover time, after the Last Supper, Jesus goes to a place where he often went to pray. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And guys, for me, the whole, the whole pivot of the Passion Week happened in that prayer time. Mark 14, verse 36, where Jesus says this short but powerful prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not, not my will but yours be done. Guys, I think as we now move forward and see Jesus resolve in his strength through trials, through false accusations, through betrayals, through the pain of the cross, I think the battle for all of this was won right here on his knees, where Jesus, in the presence of his Father, just threw out his heart, just, I, I love you, you're my Abba, you're my Daddy, you can do whatever you want, take this cup from me. Jesus had the boldness to ask, take the cross away, Father, if there's any way possible. But that last line, not my will, but yours, is Jesus showing the epitome of his love for his Father and his desire to obey the Father and go through this. And so just to pause, the, I believe the Gospel of Mark, uh, we know it was written to Christians who were at that time living in Rome, a very hostile place to follow Jesus. And I think that one of the main points, one of the main reasons Mark wrote this gospel was to show people, how do you follow Jesus? How do you follow Jesus when times get tough? And that prayer in the garden is a great picture for all of us that it is not easy to follow Jesus. There is, you know, when, when you signed up for following Jesus, if you thought this is going to be like a stroll into the end zone, it is not. It is hard. And so when you face those hard times, we do exactly what Jesus did. And we get on our knees and we just go before him with how great he is, with the big asks that we have. But we throw down finally and just say, not my will, but yours. And that is how you push through and continue to follow Jesus, empowered by him. So right after that prayer time, uh, Jesus, even though we're about nine hours away from when he began to feel the physical blows of the nails going into his hands and feet on the cross, he begins to receive blow after blow in other ways. So the first one was the betrayal by one of his disciples, how how Judas, with a kiss, betrayed Jesus and turned Jesus over to the religious leaders. So in the, in the dark of night, Jesus is arrested and then taken to a, 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 an incredibly just sham of a trial with these religious leaders. In the meantime, Jesus' disciples flee. Some of you guys have tasted the pain of abandonment. Some of you guys have tasted the pain of betrayal. The blows are starting against Jesus already. So in this trial... There's all kinds of false accusations and false charges being thrown at him. The whole thing is not fair. You did not conduct trials at night. You did not do the things they were doing to Jesus. And finally, to cut to the chase, the chief priest steps forward and says, okay, look, are you the son of God? And Jesus, without backing down, just says, I am. And you will see the son of man returning uh, in glory. And so just in the clouds coming uh, coming in heaven, in the heavens, at the right hand of power, just made a very clear, bold statement that, yes, I am the Son of God. And from that moment on, they had their charge. He committed blasphemy, claiming he was God. And what's astonishing about Jesus is through all this trial, to all these people that hated him, that wanted him down, all the charges they could bring against him, the only one that stuck was the one that was true, that he is the Son of God. That is the only thing they could find him guilty 
Uh, Jesus is truly the unblemished, perfect sacrifice for us. And so and then now we hit into Mark chapter 15. And in verse 1, it tells us that these religious leaders took Jesus to a man named Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. And so the Jew Jewish religious leaders had no authority to sentence somebody to die. Their goal was, let's kill Jesus. And for that to happen, they had to have Pilate on board. Pilate um, was in Jerusalem because it was Passover. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Passover was the time when the population of Jerusalem would go up five, six times. It's like Iowa City with Ragbri, homecoming. Like, just throw every big event that hits us and throw them all on the same weekend. Like, the, Jerusalem was popping. And so... Pilate was there to kind of keep control of things. And so at about six in the morning, they take, uh, they take Jesus to Pilate. In verse 2, chapter 15, so it said, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answers, so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate was a politician. He could tell games when he saw them. He could tell these guys were jealous of Jesus. They were envious. They were trying to do anything they could to bring Jesus down and make him look bad. But yet, as Jesus just stood there and said nothing and did not defend himself, Pilate was absolutely amazed. And so you see Pilate trying to do a political dance here. He's trying to see, is there a way that I can let this Jesus go and so, and maybe just get out of this situation somehow. Try to, in true political, maybe bad political form, try to keep everybody happy and not, not cause any waves. And so he offers a man named Barabbas to, to take, he says, I'm going to release one person to you. I'm going to release Jesus or Barabbas. You guys decide. Barabbas was a murderer, an insurrectionist, a terrorist. And so this should have been a no-brainer, right? This is like UMBC playing Virginia if you're into the NBA. Uh, NCAA tournament, like this should be an easy choice. Who's going to win this one? Who we should pick here? And yet verse 11 uh, says that the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Guys, those are, those are some of the most horrific words in the scripture that five days earlier, maybe even some of those same voices on Palm Sunday, we're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now for the sinless son of God, who all he ever did was come to this earth to heal and give hope and love and care, like the sentence on him is crucify him. How, how could that happen? And how could Jesus just kind of stand there and let this happen? The, the one who calmed storms, the one who raised the dead, like what, what's going on here? And I, I think even Pilate with his uh, just kind of twisted political background, like he just didn't know what to do. He was just baffled here. And so verse 14, Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Uh, Again, Mark is writing this to, to believers in Rome. And so he just mentions the word scourging and just goes on. Unfortunately, if you lived in Rome, you didn't have to have scourging explained to you. Um, it was a heinous way of torturing and uh, beating a prisoner. And so Jesus was scourged, most likely hands tied to a post, 
exposing his back and the back of his legs. And he would have been whipped by long leather straps of whip embedded with rock and metal. And some of the historians of the day that describe people who've been through a scourging would say that it, at times the person would die right there because of blood loss, that, that the, the destruction of the flesh would be so, so severe that you could see bone or you could see internal organs. Jesus went through that. And again, as we pause, just remember, just as we see what Jesus suffered, we realize that you can't measure the suffering, but at the same time, you cannot measure the love. What motivated Jesus to do that was his love for us. So the scourging, the sentencing to be crucified, and right after that, Jesus was turned over, it says, to a battalion of soldiers. A battalion could have been as many as 600 soldiers. Picture very calloused, very strong, just brutal, ruthless people who delight in hurting people, who delight in killing people. And Jesus just thrown over to these 600 to do as they please. They hit him in the head. They spit on him. They mocked him. They put a robe on him and just bowed to him as the king of the Jews. They had their way with him. And he just took it. And when they were done playing with him, they took him off to be crucified. They led him away to be crucified. And again, Mark doesn't elaborate on crucifixion. Again, unfortunately, way too common in the Roman culture. So they would know the pain. In fact, I, I did, if you've never done this, just to do a, a, a study sometime of, from a medical perspective, what happens in a crucifixion. And it is just heart-wrenching to think what Jesus went through for us. And um, we did a, did a kind of a new search on that for myself this week. And again, just the consensus is of all the different ways that humans have concocted to kill another human being, that, that the crucifixion is just right there. It's the worst. It's the hardest uh, way to die. And the part we miss a lot of times, maybe you're acquainted with some of that or have heard sermons on some of those details, is that sometimes what we miss is the humiliation that came right alongside with the crucifixion. That in order to make a statement, the government that would crucify someone would usually do those crucifixions in a very public place, a place where people just passing by would see a sufferer and the clear message would be, don't mess with the government. Do not cross us because this is what will happen to you. And so when you read verse 29, it, it makes sense where those who passed by Jesus so in a very public thoroughfare as he's just hanging there before them, suffering and dying, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guys, on top of the physical pain, there's, that, there's the, the embarrassment, the being derided, being mocked. 
that again, at any moment, he could have stopped. He said, you guys want to see who I really am? I mean, it would have been game over. But he just took it. He was there. He suffered. And out of all of that, the most painful part, I think, comes from that last statement we read when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first time that when Jesus was talking to God that he didn't use the word father. Because the intimacy that maybe Jesus still knew it was there, he sure did not feel that intimacy because for the first time in all of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, there's a separation there because God the Son is bearing on his body, on that cross, your sins and my sins. Like we put them there. It's all that we've, we've done that has been displeasing to God was now on Jesus. And so the holy God the Father and God the Son had a completely different relationship. Why have you forsaken me? We, we cannot measure. I have no idea how you measure that pain and that suffering. But again, just like you can't measure that pain and that suffering, you cannot measure the love that God has for you, the love that God wants to pour into your hearts. Remember, this is love that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Greater love, Jesus said, greater love is no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. This is the love that God wants poured into your hearts. He wants to totally change your life. And, and the revolution God wants to do in your life is not going to be a power play. It's going to come through the sacrifice and the laying down of the life of the Son of God. That's how God wants to invade your heart. He wants to flood your heart with his love by what Jesus did for us on the cross. This is love. And so through his great suffering, Jesus expressed relentless love for us. And the relentless, here's the deal. If you're new at Parkview this morning and maybe you've not heard the gospel message, maybe a great summary of the gospel message, you guys, is this, is that what Jesus did for us on the cross shows two things. First, it shows me that I am far more sinful than I ever thought I was. Like I, if Jesus had to do all of that to rescue me, if that's how broken, hopeless, messed up I am, wow, I had no idea. Like I know I'm a pretty bad guy and I know, I always tell you guys, I'm the worst sinner I know. You guys can fight for number two, but I still don't know that I understand how, how my sin is so offensive to a holy God. All I gotta do is look at what Jesus suffered and what Jesus did, and my knees should buckle, I should just fall to the ground and say, well, I am far more sinful than I ever imagined. The other side of the gospel is this, that I'm far more loved than I could ever dream. Like there is no place in this life, there's no place on this planet that I'm gonna find the kind of love that I see in Jesus Christ. That when I'm at the foot of the cross and I'm humbled by my own sin that put him there, I'm also at the same time just blown away by the love he had for me that kept him there. This is love that the son of God laid down his life for us. There's no greater love than this. So um, just an amazing contrast happens at the cross. So, and the cross is the place where we just square up with the reality. We're sinful people. We need a savior. We need Jesus. And then at the same time, the cross is the place where God says, I love you. And Jesus died for you to set you free from sin. And so do you understand the perspective then too? You don't stand at the cross and get all proud about yourself. Like, hey, look how great I am. It's like, no, the cross humbles us. 
But at the same time, you don't stand at the foot of the cross and just go, oh, you just at the foot of the cross, you see how valued and how loved and how pursued you are by God because of the relentless love of Jesus Christ for you. So Max Lucado put it like this. Does your self-esteem need a boost? Do you need affirmation? Then pause at the base of the cross and be reminded of this, that the maker of the stars would rather die for you than live without you. It's a powerful statement. So, okay, Jesus has expressed his love for us like this. So what do we do? Like how, if we're starting to track with this and we're starting to be blown away by this as, as we should, like, okay, Jesus, how, how do we express our love back to you? Like how do we show you that we love you? We love because he first loved us. Okay, so what's our love to look like back to him? So I'm going to make this statement that Jesus' love language is obedience. Jesus' love language is obedience. If the love language thing is new to you about 20 years ago, a guy wrote a book uh, called The Five Love Languages, and it's meant to help marriages or friendships, like as you're trying to show love to each other, like do you speak each other's love language, okay? So there's giving gifts, there's touch, there's quality time, there's words of affirmation, and acts of service, okay? So you better know your wives, or you better know your good, Lori likes acts of service, and she likes quality time. Those are awesome. So if I try to show Lori, I love her. So a few years ago, I was doing premarital counseling, and as I shared those with the couple, the woman in this couple said, wow, I like all five of those. And I said, dude, you're going to be busy. Like, you gotta get, you got to get after all five of those, okay? So if you were to square up and look at the scripture and say, well, what's Jesus' love language? Like, how does he really know I love him? And you look at John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Just like Jesus showed his love to the Father by obeying him in the garden, saying, not my will, but yours. The way we show Jesus that we understand his love, that we just we value his love, is that we obey him. And so what I love about obedience is this. Every one of us in this room... Um, if, I, if you were to ask me, well, what's my next step in following Jesus? What should I do next? Because some of you in this church have known Jesus for like 50 years or more. Okay, that's awesome. Some of you are maybe just a day into this or a week into this. But what's really cool is my answer would be the same to you. What do you do next? Like for every one of us, the next step in growing closer to Jesus is obedience. What's he calling all of us to do? No one here has arrived yet, right? And so there's always going to be something new that Jesus is going to put before you and say, do this. I want you to take this step. I want you to love this person. I want you to forgive this person. I want you, and I'll empower you to do it, just like Jesus modeled for us. How do you obey to the point of death on the cross? You ask for help. Like you go on your knees and say, Father, help me. So but for every one of us, the next step in following Jesus is going to be a step of obedience. And can I just encourage you that it's as you obey, that God does powerful things through your life, just like what happened through the cross and the resurrection, how now in heaven, one day we see it in the book of Revelation, there will be people from every tribe, language, people, nation. Jesus, Jesus, by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, became the savior of the world. God used his obedience to do powerful things. And so the message from Jesus today is like, you follow my example then. Let's go. Let's obey the Father and watch the great things he wants to do through you. Okay, so, so that's love expressed. Jesus expressed his love for us. And God's desire then is that we would be a people who would embrace that love, not just know about that, but like let's embrace the love of Jesus. And so 
Uh, and again, that's how God has moved throughout history as people have embraced the love of God. God has been doing revolutionary things throughout history and throughout the world as people respond to the love of Jesus. So even in our passage, there's three. Just want to hit two of them quickly and camp on the third one a little bit. There's, there's a centurion who was right there at the foot of the cross the whole time Jesus was suffering and being crucified. For six hours, Jesus was on the cross. For six hours, this soldier watched Jesus die. And in verse 39, it says, And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, his last said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. That is, that is an astonishing statement. I described what this centurion would have been like earlier. He was, had seen so many people die, maybe even at his own hands, had caused so many people to die. And maybe you know in your own life, like if you jam your thumb with a hammer or something, like rah, what comes out shows what's really in your life. When you watch a man suffer for six hours and see the things that came out of Jesus, it changed this hardened soldier who would have been indoctrinated with the truth that Caesar is God. You wouldn't just flippantly say, oh, Jesus is the son of God. You were convinced that Caesar was God. But to have such a radical shift in your life that could only be explained that he saw Jesus die. Like how Jesus spoke to people, how Jesus expended, extended forgiveness and compassion, even though he was suffering, changed this man. The love of Jesus embraced by this centurion caused him to have a total change in who he saw Jesus was. We don't know anything else about this guy moving forward, be cool to run into. I, I think this guy's going to be in heaven. Like, I think this guy, um, God did amazing things, but just totally changed him by simply by watching Jesus die. Another guy whose life was totally flipped is this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. At the end of chapter 15, Joseph is the guy who asked to take the body of Jesus down so they can have a proper burial, down from the cross. When Jesus is pronounced dead, uh, it was Joseph that went to Pilate and said, could I have the body of Jesus? This was a huge risk for Joseph. He was part of the Sanhedrin, part of that very prestigious group that sentenced Jesus to die. Even though Joseph didn't agree with what they did, for some reason he didn't speak up, he didn't shut it down. But here after Jesus died, he asked for the body to take it down and make sure it got proper burial. What, a, what an amazing step of courage. This was not a career advancing move. For him. This put his own life at risk. And yet, moved by and compelled by the love of Jesus, Joseph took that courageous step. The guy I want to spend just maybe a little more time on, and then we're wrapping this thing up, is a guy named Simon of Cyrene. I don't know, for those of you that have been Christians, maybe for a few years, and you read the Easter narrative, you know, a couple times, for me, it seems like every year there's a new part that just jumps out at me. And this week for me, it was this guy named Simon of Cyrene. In verse 21, it says, and, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Okay, so um, this is back in the narrative where Jesus has just been whipped and the soldiers did whatever they wanted to him. Now Jesus is going out to be crucified and he's carrying the beam on which he was to be nailed. And so probably because of the blood loss and the weakness Jesus would have had after a scourging, he just couldn't carry the beam anymore. And so the soldiers just randomly picked out of the crowd this guy named Simon. Say, hey, you carry his cross. And so the clue we got here is that Simon was actually going into the city while Jesus is leaving the city to go out to be crucified. This wasn't on his way. This wasn't convenient. This wasn't on his agenda in that day. But by God's sovereignty, Simon was chosen 
to carry the cross for Jesus. As you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus would have been moving ahead of Simon, and Luke tells us some of the conversations Jesus has with people as he's going to be crucified. And again, you see compassion, and you see concern for others from a man who's just been scourged and is heading to his crucifixion. So Simon's just kind of watching and listening to Jesus as he's carrying his cross. From here, you, you read between some lines, but you can imagine this 50, 60-pound beam carrying it for a while when you would get to where Jesus was crucified. Simon would lay that down and most likely sat down for a couple minutes just to gain his strength back, to catch his breath. But in, that, in those few moments, he would have seen Jesus nailed to the cross. And if he were to linger just a little bit longer, he would have heard Jesus' words of forgiveness and compassion to those who were killing him. Like all that came from Jesus during this whole time was not like anger and fighting back at the people and complaining and, and, and just whining. I mean, all you see coming from this man as he suffers and as he's, die, as he's dying is love for people. It just completely changed him. And now, of the three characters, we do know something lasting happened to Simon. And maybe you caught the, maybe you caught the clue, but... Um, Verse 21 again said, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, then he just says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like, hello, like, why, why did you just suddenly throw in, Mark, why did you just suddenly throw in the names Alexander and Rufus? To me, that sounds like son and dog. Like, maybe not even two sons, but like, why, why did you just sling Alexander and Rufus out there? So what is so cool is you can see in other places in the scripture, that, um, remember again, Mark's gospel was written to Christians living in Rome, figuring out how do you follow Jesus in a hostile environment. And so he throws out, Mark throws out the names Alexander and Rufus. Do you know why he did that? Because Alexander and Rufus were prominent members of the church and the movement in Rome and in Asia. Like they recognized those names. Oh, Alexander and Rufus, that was their dad? They carried the cross? Oh, that's, that's cool. So we, we could assume that Simon knew very little about Jesus. He was from Cyrene. It was a north, northern country in Africa. He most likely was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Just happened to be walking into town when Jesus is leaving town to be crucified. He's called in to carry the cross. And as he's calling, he sees the love of Jesus on display. And his life is flipped. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul is writing to the same group of people, the church in Rome. And in chapter 16, he has his greetings to all these people. One of his greetings in verse 13 says, Greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me. Guys, that's, that's Simon's wife. Like something has flipped in this family by just an incidental passing along the way, carrying the cross, seeing the love of Jesus, and being completely embraced by the love of Jesus. And then set free to, to just help lead the expansion. In fact, if you have time, look in Acts chapter 11, because it says that some of the early um, believers that helped spread the gospel to, to the Gentile areas beyond Jerusalem and Judea um, were people from Cyrene. Like this, Simon could have been one of those dudes just right away taking the gospel to Antioch, which then became a base from which the gospel spread into all of Europe. Like just by one casual pass by and asked to carry the cross uh, for Jesus, just by seeing Jesus die, this man's life was completely flipped. His whole family was completely flipped as he embraced the love of Jesus. So let me just, let's bring it to us right now. And the Bible says there's two ways you can tell 
if you have embraced the love of Jesus. So this is where I'm very interested right now as your pastor. I don't want this to be just another Easter lesson. You know, I learned a few more facts this year. I want to know, have you embraced the love of Jesus? Do you, not just do you know about it, true, false, just Jesus love me, yes, but are you truly living like the love of God is being poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit? There's two ways, the Bible says, two places you check. Number one is if you embrace the love of Jesus, you will be fearless. Perfect love casts out all fear. Romans 8, 31, 32, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Like, we have a perfect setup. We have the love of God behind us. Like we have nothing to fear. Guys, we, I'm starting to sound like an old man these days. Like I said, I can never remember a time when I've seen so much fear in our country. Like I just, I just see fear. And right now the topic seems to be safety of our kids in school. I've had at least five conversations. People in different parts of our country are just like, just paralyzed by their children going to school. And again, the threat is real and my heart breaks for the places where we've seen children uh, just kind of taken out. That's but at the same time, you guys, God is calling us uh, to be fearless. We have the love of God surrounding us. Like, this is a day where God's people can really stand out and living fearlessly. I think people are afraid of the economy. Like, I haven't seen in a long time. People are afraid of the tensions in our political setting. People are really conf afraid of wor the world scene and which country is going to get us next and all this kind of thing. Like, wow, in such a day as this, God is calling his people to just be be filled with his love, embrace the love of Jesus, and live courageously, live fearlessly. Not arrogant, not cocky. Remember, because if you're before the cross, you remember, I'm a worse sinner I ever thought I was, right? So you're not going cocky and arrogant, but you're going confidently, you're going courageously. And the second, the second sign, like people who really embrace the love of Jesus are then freed to stop living for themselves and to love other people. Those two go hand in hand. So we live fearlessly, laying down our lives for other people, serving them, regardless of how they respond to us, regardless of oh, what could this cost me in my time or my finances. Like when we are so convinced of the love of God that was, again, you can't measure how much Jesus suffered for us, but you can't measure how much he loved us. That love being poured into your heart sets you free not to be afraid and sets you free to live courageously for others and not for yourself. Jesus said, a new command I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. So, so uh, what Jesus, what you see throughout history is that when people understand this, where you see where the, the Christian church has moved throughout our world, and, 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 and follow Jesus' example. That's where you've seen God's people do amazing things, where the poor are cared for, where the rights of women are defended, where the rights of, of, um, of the weak or the oppressed are defended, where you see generosity, where you see the frontline responders when there's tragedy and crisis. Even today, the flooding in Houston, for example, and different places, you see God's people moving in first because they are set free from fear and free from living for themselves, and they give their lives for other, that's the gospel on display. There's a, there's a, there's a um, theologian named N.T. Wright that has written about, uh, a, he's, he's equating the day that Jesus died to the beginning of a revolution. 
like a revolution began. And when you think about revolutions, you think usually of one powerful group taking over and dominating another group. But what God did on his day of revolution was he had the sinless son of God lay down his life and sacrifice for us. And look at, look at how, how God, through the act of Jesus, has created revolutionaries throughout history who have lived for the greatest cause, for the, go- the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in our city, in our day, like this city needs to see the love of God. And the way they're going to see it is not by us being angry or yelling louder or protesting more, but the way the city is going to see the love of Jesus is by us laying down our lives and living, living compassionate lives, reaching out to those different than us, uh, seeing us being generous with what we have and with our time. And um, one of my favorite things about being a pastor here is um, in the different leadership circles I meet with, one thing I like to do is just let the, let the leaders start talking and say, what are you seeing God do? Like, what's, what's going on? What do we praise God for? And I love hearing stories of you guys just taking this gospel message and living it out. The ways that you guys are serving and, and loving and reaching out. Um, one of my favorites from Wednesday was, um, there's someone around here, there's a lot of you guys that do a lot of awesome things, so I always hate to just pick one, but um, one that made me laugh the other day was there's someone who's notorious in a good way for just making big meals for groups here. And so this one particular group, um, this person had to go up to and say, you know what, I can't, um, I'm going to have to bring the food to you a day early because I'm going to have pretty major surgery. <laughs> it's like, I would have thought, it's like, I'm having surgery, I'm not cooking for you. But she still, like, say, I want to, I want to serve you, so it's just going to come a day early. And so after the hospitalization and uh, surgery and all this kind of thing, when it came time for this person to leave the hospital, she had a party at the hospital. She brought in a bunch of pizzas and just celebrated with the staff and everybody that took care of her. Like, what a beautiful, it just made me laugh. If you know the person, like, she just makes you laugh. Like, what a beautiful way to, and that sounds small. We just talk about Jesus on the cross, right? But it sounds small, but like, still, that's beautiful. Like, in a time where it'd be, oh, it's all me and it's, I'm suffering and I'm going to have surgery. Just like, courageously living for others. That's a beautiful picture. And so, we, we are in, I think, an urgent time in the history of our city. And this city needs to see the love of Jesus put on display. And my prayer is this Easter season that we truly embrace that Jesus is relentless in his love for us and that that would free us uh, not to live fearfully, but to free us to lay down our lives for this city. So uh, let me pray and then we'll, we'll wrap up. By this we know love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So Jesus, help me embrace that love in a fresh way so that I don't live by fear anymore, so that I can lead a courageous life, so that I can lead a life not for myself or not just for my family, but for others. And, and would you do that throughout this church? Would we fully understand the love you have for us? And would that set us free? God, I I pray specifically if anybody here doesn't understand you or know the gospel yet, that this Easter would be the season that they understand what the cross is all about. They would understand the love, the relentless love that Jesus has for them, that you'd set them free. So we love you. Thank you, Jesus. What a privilege to know you and serve you. In your great name we pray. Amen.